so glad that you are here. Thank you for being at the, the altar fellowship today. We are going to be dedicating some babies to the Lord. And, uh, I cannot wait. We're going to do that at the, at the end of service. Um, you know, as, as I've been preparing, uh, for this Sunday, uh, specifically, I have really felt uh, strong in my spirit. Like we have to guard, we have to guard our hearts against treating the the next generation like they are an inconvenience instead of an opportunity. Now, understand, parenthood is hard, right? Even even if you're not parenting the next generation, maybe you're just going to church with them. It can be hard for you too sometimes. It can be hard to hear, you know. You sometimes will step on a little kid's foot during worship. It's like, it can be, I, I understand that it can be difficult, but the truth is that what we are doing is we're investing into the next generation is, is we are shaping the future. We have the unique opportunity. There's probably 120 kids from ages one to 11 over in our kids wing right now. And, uh, and, and then middle and high school students that aren't over there that are, are here with us in the service who are, who are phenomenal, amazing uh, young men and women who um, are, are going to carry the torch after us. And, uh, and for us to, to say, you know what, just stay out of the way while the adults do the serious business is, is for us to set the next generation up for failure. Um, that's how I was raised in the church. You know, kids go over to the kids building so that the adults can do the serious stuff. And I don't remember a single message that I heard at, at church from the time I was born until I turned 18 years old. I couldn't tell you anything that I learned at all. Which is, which is tragic. It's heartbreaking. I, I think far too often in, in the modern Western church, we put kids on a shelf and we'll say, we'll, we'll disciple them when they turn 18. But by the time they turn 18, it's too late. They've been discipled by TikTok already. You know, uh, we have to be proactive. We have to be intentional. We have to rightly value the, the sacred gift that Yahweh has given us to be able to invest into the next generation and to shape the future by the way that we love the kids right now. Amen. Um, and, uh, you know, as I've been uh, sort of thinking about this idea that we're going to dedicate children to the Lord, I uh, have been thinking, you know, how many kids <laughs> are having very different experiences? You know, they're not coming up on stage in front of friends and family in, in the Lord who are going to uh, lift them up in prayer and celebrate God's hand on, on their life. You know, they, they have parents that are like taking them to a doctor for some hormone blockers and surgery, you know, or they, or they're, they're dealing with the, the divorce, the brutal divorce their parents are going through, or they're trying to, trying to navigate, you know, friends that are committing suicide and, you know, growing up in, in a, a, the paradigm of like, school shootings being a, a regular occurrence. Like there's, there's so much chaos. There's so much confusion that is sort of constantly attacking the children of, 
of this generation. And I, I think it's, it's a, a privilege that we have to be able to, uh, to esteem and honor the kids of this house and to say, God, set them apart. Make them the solution to the chaos in which they're growing up. Make them the answer to the, uh, to the, the, the questions of their generation. And, uh, you know, it's, it's reminded me as I've been preparing for this message, it's reminded me of, of uh, a couple stories in the scripture. And, and I'm going to start in Mark uh, chapter 4. This is a story I think many of you are, are probably very familiar with. Um, it says this, it says, uh, it started in Mark 4, verse 35, Mark 4, 35. This is um, when Jesus it calms the storm. It, it says this, it says, on the, the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, uh, when they had left the multitude, they, they took him along in the boat uh, uh, as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, I've been thinking about this, this idea that Jesus calms the storm. And I, I feel like every time I, you know, get a, a news update on my phone, it's awful news. <laughs> you know, like every time you turn on whatever, Fox or CNN or um, MSNBC or, you know, whatever your preferred news outlet is, whatever it is, it's bad news for sure, whatever they're talking about. And uh, the world is ending. World War III is right around the corner. You know, the pandemic's going to come back. You know, COVID 2.0 is going to be way worse than the first one. Like there's always, there's always some crisis. There's always some catastrophic apocalyptic crisis right around the corner. And the only way that we can fix it is to like give the government more money. And uh, <laughs> that's a joke. That's, a, that's an awful strategy. The people who are to the DMV should get as little of my money as absolutely possible. <laughs> They're clearly, they're bad at what they do. <laughs> but, um, but I, uh, uh, but I, you know, as I, as I think about it, it's, it's like I, I look through this, you know, phone shaped window that I have, that I carry in my pocket. And I, and I think there's a storm outside and things might be good in here. Things might be good in my house, but. And outside of our little world, there's a storm out there. And uh, the wind is blowing and the waves are, they're coming in, you know. And it feels like wave after wave of deception and distraction, wave after wave of compromise and complacency and confusion, wave after wave of faithlessness and, and deceptive demonic ideologies. Like they're just pummeling this, this little boat that we're on and... Uh, and it's easy, it's easy for us to feel like the, the chaos is never going to stop because it's, it's relentless. It feels relentless. But, but you know, just a couple weeks ago, I was, I was in prayer and the Lord brought me to Revelation chapter four and I saw something, I saw something in, in, in Revelation four that gave me a, a new bit of insight. 
into this passage of Mark. Revelation 4.12 says this. Because it's describing in Revelation 4, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, it's describing the throne room of God. Revelation 4.12 says this. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. So I want you to see this. This is John who was raised on a boat. This is, this is uh, John, the, what, the brother of, of James, whose father was a successful fisherman. These kids, their entire life, they would have been riding in, in boats, fishing with their dad uh, out on the Sea of Galilee. And, and, uh, and John, he writes, as, I'm, as he's looking at the throne in Revelation chapter 4, he says, before the throne, like right in front of where the throne is sitting, there's one who's sitting on the throne. This is Jesus, the, the, the high and exalted king. And, and I see him sitting on the throne, but in front of his throne, there's a sea and that sea looks like glass. That sea is, is so smooth. It's so calm. It's so steady. It's so still that it, it looks like a mirror reflecting the one who sits on the throne. And, uh, and I realized, I remember standing in my kitchen, sharing with my, my wife about this. I realized something I'd never seen before that that I can imagine, you know, that there were a few times in John's life when he was out on the Sea of Galilee that he was in some serious storms. But similarly, I could imagine there were some times in John's life when he was out on the Sea of Galilee and maybe he got up early and he got out there before the sun came up and he's in the middle of the sea and the sun is rising and there's no wind and no waves and he's sitting there and he looks around and it's like a, sh- uh, like a mirror all around him. Have you ever seen a lake like that? There's nothing in the world, nothing more beautiful than that. It's incredible. You can see the reflections of the hills and the trees next to the lake. You can see the reflection of the sky. It's like, it's this incredible, smooth, glassy surface. And, uh, and John, you know, he's doing his best to describe what he's looking at. And he sees the, the, the throne of God. But in front of the throne, he says, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of when I was out on the sea and there was no wind and no waves at all when everything was perfectly still and peaceful and it felt like all creation was holding its breath. That's what that reminds me of. And I, I love this idea that Jesus, he's the one who calms the storms. And that what John sees in Revelation chapter four is that there's a place, a place called before the throne when every storm has been stilled, when there's no wind or waves to mix up the sea or to toss your boat around where Jesus has so fully conquered everything that could set itself in opposition to you that when you come before his throne, suddenly the sea is so still that it looks like glass. So I want to remind you before we go any further that when life is trying and tumultuous, and it might be trying and tumultuous right now, but when life is trying and tumultuous, I want you to remember Jesus calms violent seas. And what's more, there is a place, there is a place right now. That place is called before his throne. There's a place before his throne where every storm is stilled and the sea rests and reflects the glory of the one enthroned above it. And so I want you to know the next time things seem chaotic and scary, there's a place you can go where the storm is calmed. And that place is before his throne. The next time things are uncertain and overwhelming, there's a place you can go called before his throne where the sea is calm and the wind is still. 
And so uh, Jesus, he, you know, he comes and he becomes the fulfillment of his own prayer. Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so a, a chaotic, tumultuous sea becomes perfectly still and calm. The wind ceases, the waves are still, they're sitting on this sea of glass. And everyone that was there, the Bible says, uh, they, they, they feared exceedingly and they said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him? But it didn't start like that, did it? No, it didn't start like that. There, uh, there suddenly came a great windstorm that arose and waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But what was Jesus doing? Was he running around in panic along with the disciples? No, Jesus doesn't panic. That might be the most significant prophetic word I've ever released at this church. <laughs> Jesus doesn't panic. You can tweet that later. Jesus doesn't panic. The disciples, they're panicking. Jesus is asleep. <laughs> he was in the stern. Verse 38 says, but he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Uh, and... Uh, and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I, there's two points that I have to make here. The first is, is this. Um, a good friend of mine, Pastor Parker Thomaston, uh, he, he brought a, a word. He taught on this passage a few years ago, um, a, a message that I was like so jealous of. It was so good. You know, it's when you're a preacher, you listen to other preachers and you go, ah, I wish I would have thought of that. You know, like, <laughs> golly, that's a good word. And uh <laughs> Uh, and, and Pastor and Pastor Parker, he, he said this, and I thought this was so beautiful. He said, if, if they would have been doing what they were supposed to do, that is following Jesus' lead. They would have been asleep in the bottom of the boat, and they never even would have seen the storm. And I can't help but wonder how many storms we've been greatly concerned about that Jesus is sleeping through. If my eyes were fixed on him instead of Tucker Carlson, maybe I would have been at peace, Right? <laughs> Maybe I would have been able to rest. Maybe I would have been able to rest instead of panic when the storm came. Like maybe I would have known everything's under control if my eyes would have been on the one I'm following instead of the ones that raised me. Like these guys, they were raised on a ship. They know how to deal with storms. Their fathers taught them how to do it. And so they reverted back to the things their fathers taught them instead of the thing their heavenly father was demonstrating for them right in front of their face. If they would have been following the lead of Jesus, they never even would have seen the storm. They never even would have seen the storm. They would have been asleep in the bottom of the boat right next to him, curled up in a place called rest instead of running around up on the deck in panic. And because they were not following the example he was setting for them, because they didn't allow him to, to lead, because they, they didn't follow what he was demonstrating, it says that they awoke him. In verse 38, they, they awoke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What? This is, if I'm honest, I don't know that I have ever seen in the scripture a better summation of the posture of American Christianity than that verse. Do you not care? Jesus, do you not care? that there are transgenders in our school? Do you not care that they're having pride parades all over the place and they're indoctrinating our children to destroy themselves? Jesus, don't you care about it? 
Of course he cares. He's not surprised by any of it. Jesus, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he, he's gone before you and he knows how this story ends. And if he's not panicking, I don't need to. If he's not panicking, I don't need to. What I can do is rest in intimacy with him and trust that he can handle whatever storms the world may throw my way. They come to him and say, do you not care that we are perishing? Friends, I want you to know Jesus, he cares. Um, He cares. He cares about your soul. He cares about our nation. He cares about the, uh, the future. Can I tell you how I know that God is not done with America? Because he's got people like you here. Can I tell you how I know that God is going to continue to pour out his spirit in historic ways in this land? Because if he didn't intend to bring revival to this land, he wouldn't have sent Kai and Caleb and Carver Montgomery into it. I'm telling you, the next generation is a a living, breathing witness of God's plans for the future. And we have the unique privilege of having a hand in the glorious, miraculous thing that God is birthing into the earth through the children of this house especially in this generation more broadly. What an amazing privilege and honor it is to be able to see God's plan before the rest of the world does. Oh, they may not know that help is on the way, but I'm, I'm looking out in this room. I see kids like Micah Bailey, Allie Haggerty, and I can't help but think help is on the way. The world may feel outnumbered and overwhelmed, but I'm telling you help is on the way. So they ask him, do you not care that we are perishing? Of course he cares. He arose and he rebuked the wind, said to the sea, peace be still. The wind ceased and there was great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, this reminds me of another story that seems a little bit disconnected, but I want you to to like, to go with me. We're going to have... An adventure in theology this morning. Does that sound good? So we're going to flip all the way back in our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. Yes. Somebody was raised in an Assemblies of God church. I'm so glad. (laughs) Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37. Let's go. Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses and then we're going to um, draw some things out as the Lord Lord leads us. It says this, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, 
He said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I, as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a, uh, there was a noise. And suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Glory to God. Um, you know, there's a, a couple points I think worth making in, in this passage. The, the first is this. The hand of the Lord came upon me. This is how it starts. And brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley and it was full of bones. Can I tell you, if God is leading you somewhere, uh, you would expect it to be somewhere better than this. Right. I mean, let, here, listen, let me make this point. Let's go back to Mark chapter four. Do you want to know how Mark four started? These guys got stuck out on the water in this storm in the middle of the night. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. It was Jesus idea. He put them in that situation. He was the one that led them into the storm. Just like in Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of, of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. It was full of bones. Listen, when people say God has called me to, uh, uh, to, to, to go here or to do this, you would think that thing's going to be beautiful and successful and prosperous. And then God calls you to like Johnson City. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is an amazing place. Actually, I really love it. Um, so they, I thought this was going to be a valley of dry bones, and, and um, uh, maybe it was when we got here, but God had other plans for Johnson City, just like he had other plans for the valley he put Ezekiel in, amen? And, uh, and so we're, uh, we're sort of, we're confronted with this reality that sometimes, sometimes following God doesn't mean that he takes you to the mountaintop or to the meadow, but sometimes where he takes you is a valley full of death. See, we, uh, um, we tell people when we're trying to get them to repeat a prayer after us that if you follow God, he's going to lead you into things that are, are good. Now, for carnal people, good is selfish. For carnal people, what is good is that which is most comfortable and convenient for me. And so they pray the prayer, I'll follow God as long as he leads me into things that are comfortable and convenient for me. Sure, that sounds fantastic. I'll come forward at the end of the altar call. I'll write my name on the dotted line. That sounds great. But then God calls them to like, I don't know, take up their cross daily, deny themselves and follow Christ. And suddenly they think this is not what I signed up for. This isn't what the pastor said this was going to be like. This is uncomfortable for me. So God must not be real. And they leave the church by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions. They walk away from the church because what we told them salvation would look like is uh, prosperity, not discipleship. And, uh, 
And so I, I, I want you to understand this, that sometimes saying yes to following God will not lead you to the mountaintop or to the meadow. Sometimes, sometimes what it means to follow God is that you have to go into the valley. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them. So this is what Ezekiel's seeing. He sees, he sees this valley full of bodies and body parts. Absolutely forgotten. Overlooked and ignored. Nobody even cared enough about these people to give them a proper burial. Just left. Abandoned. Betrayed. He, he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Now remember who's talking to Ezekiel here. It is God. And when God asks you if something is possible, here's a cheat for you. The answer is always yes. Yes. I've never met somebody who doesn't know the answer to that question. I've never met an atheist that doesn't know the answer to that question. If, if God were real, could he make a valley of dry bones live again? If God were real, then certainly. Everybody knows the answer to that. If God asks you, can these bones live? The answer to that question is an immediate and enthusiastic yes, of course. You are God. Whatever you will, will happen. But here's Ezekiel's response. Ezekiel, he responds like most of (laughs) y'all. Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, oh, Lord God, I'm sure you know. (laughs) Like how much of our theology is built on this sort of, uh, uh, this sort of impulse that we have to abdicate ourselves of personal responsibility You know, we do things like this. Before we pray, we say things like, God, if it be your will. Listen, if you don't know God's will, like, don't bother praying. See, here's here's the thing. Like, here's, how many times have we heard people say, well, you know what, like, God works in mysterious ways. God knows what's going to happen in this situation. It's like, sure, yeah, God does know, but we know God. In fact, in fact, what can search the deep things of a man's heart but the spirit who is in that man? And what then can also search the deep things of God's heart but the spirit that we have been given to dwell within us? We don't have to live in blind ignorance anymore. We don't have to shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know. See, and and I've got to believe that Ezekiel was smart enough to know whatever God wants to accomplish, God can accomplish but if I have to, and I understand I'm reading between the lines here, but I, like Ezekiel, am just a man. And I have uh, uh, Im- impulses as well to preserve my own dignity and comfort and convenience. And so the Lord says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you know. And I, I think I've, I've got to believe that what Ezekiel was doing here was like a, a feigning piety to move himself out of the way of responsibility. Because he knows if he says, yes, absolutely, then God's going to say something along the lines of, okay, then get to work. And so, but if he says, Lord, you know, then he gets to just remain a spectator, right? 
And this is what we do all the time. We continually say, well, you know what? If God wants that to happen in our generation, then it'll happen. If, if God wants to uh, bring an end to abortion in America, then, then he'll bring an end to an abortion. If God wants to reach the, the Muslim world, then God will reach the Muslim world. And, and, you know, can it happen? I'm sure that God knows. No, friend, we've got to be willing to say in the middle of the storm or in the middle of the valley, the answer is yes. God, whatever you will, will be done. God, whatever you speak has to happen. All creation stands ready to receive and submit to whatever you say. God, your word is law and nothing can resist you. Whatever you say will be. But Ezekiel, he, he takes the, the easy way out and God being full of mercy, he doesn't let him off that easy. You know, again, in verse four, again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. Verse seven, so I prophesied as I was commanded. There we go. Ezekiel's getting it, you know. He's learning faith. He's learning to believe that when God is involved, nothing is impossible. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And then he sees these bones become bodies. But he says at the end of verse eight, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, verse nine, prophesy to the breath, the wind, the spirit. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. You know, the title of my message this morning is The Storm and the Valley. The Storm and the Valley. And the reason I titled it that is because we see two examples. We see one example in Ezekiel 37, and we see another example in Mark chapter 4 of people in impossible situations standing up and declaring the word of God and watching their situation transform itself. I want you to understand that the faith God was looking for in Ezekiel, he later demonstrated in Christ. The faith God was looking for in Ezekiel, he later demonstrated in Christ. And what God demonstrated in Christ is what he demands from us today. He is asking us in this day, when all seems lost, when there is no earthly reason for hope, when the next generation seems more broken, confused, and conflicted than maybe any generation prior, he's asking us today, can these bones live? And what is our answer going to be? Yes, Lord. yes, absolutely. And friend, I'm full of hope because I see the kids in this house. I see the kind of radical, revolutionary boys and girls and young men and women that Yahweh is putting his hand on and his spirit in, in this house. And I think if God 
If God doesn't do this in any other church, if, this, if what he's doing here is entirely unique, we're still going to change the world. But if he's doing around the nation what he's doing in the kids at the altar fellowship, there is no way that the moral decline of this nation can continue for another generation. I believe the future is in good hands. And I believe that we have the unique divine, supernatural opportunity as a family to surround this next generation and to say, these bones will live. And God is going to use you as the catalyst for the kind of revival we've been too scared and too faithless to to even dream of. So many of us have fought and bled and suffered and struggled to get out of captivity and our kids are never going to know. The, re- the religious slavery that we were born and raised in. Our kids are never going to know the sorrow that marked our life growing up under the weight of an oppressive religious system with, with the name of Jesus loosely tied to it. Our kids are going to be raised in freedom unlike anything we could have ever imagined growing up. Amen. And so, I, listen, I understand that it's easy to feel hopeless when you see videos of kids, you know, beating people up and shooting each other and throwing Molotov cocktails through shop windows. But I'm telling you, God is on the throne. None of this took him by surprise. He's the one that invited the disciples to get on that boat and to go out on that sea. He's the one that called Ezekiel uh, out into the valley of dry bones. We are right on track for the greatest outpouring of the glory and revival the the kind of glory and revival that the fathers of our faith could only ever have dreamed of we are right on time we are right on track and when I look at at the amazing kids in this house I can't help but think the future is in good hands And so we have the privilege this morning of being able to dedicate children to the Lord, to pray over them, to declare um, in agreement with their parents, with their grandparents. I've seen many grandparents here today and uh, and, and more importantly, in agreement with the word of God. Um, These children will be marked even from a young age, filled with his spirit and used for his glory in profound ways. Um, And so if you are one of the families that have uh, intended to have your child um, uh, dedicated today. We would love to invite you up um, to, to, uh, to come. I think there were some like random sicknesses and injuries, like one of them, uh, hopefully they're back from getting stitches. Uh, you gotta love, you gotta love kids. Um, but uh, if, so yeah, if you're one of the families that are gonna be uh, uh, bringing a, a child to be dedicated this morning, we'd like to invite you to come up right over on this side by Miss Mandy now, and, um, and we are gonna get started. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you were impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the Altar as we work to establish the Kingdom of Heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.